as he brings it. Amen. Amen. The summer holiday can be a kind of um, a funny time in church life because church activities tend to slow down a bit, people are away, um, some parts of the family very much take the summer holidays off because that's their life stage. Other parts of the family very much don't take uh, time off because it's a lot more expensive to go away in the school holidays. So you've got kind of this mix of things going on. And um, then when you add into uh, the kind of the unusual summer that we're getting, I don't think we've had one like it since 1976. And um, there are some people here who can remember 1976 and uh, others who cannot. And I thought it would be really good in this context to drill down into the gift that God has given us in his spirit. And I want you to remember afresh how different the old covenant is to the new covenant. Now in the old covenant, all of God's people were included But the Spirit was not poured out on everyone in the same way. What God would tend to do is select particular leaders and particular prophets and pour out his Spirit on them for a particular role and a particular task that they were given to do to kind of foreshadow what was coming. But when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended and gave the Holy Spirit to the church, it was a totally different deal. It wasn't one or two particularly chosen leaders who who would do a task that the Holy Spirit wanted done in a region for a time. Not at all. The Holy Spirit was given to the whole community. So the Holy Spirit's given to you if you're two. The Holy Spirit's given to you if you're 12. The Holy Spirit's given to you if you're 20 or 30 or 50 or 80 or 99. The the Holy Spirit is poured out on young and old and slaves and free. So without regard at all for status or your role in society or what people think of you or how good-looking you are or how intelligent or what your social skills are like or you know all the things that the world sees and values or even how good you are. The Holy Spirit's just given, poured out, and the Bible says that God gives the Spirit without measure. And if you're a gardener at all, you will see how dry the ground is. And um, it's very interesting in our road, watching how different families deal with that. And then the family's just not bothered about the gardens. Uh, and then they're the ones that are, but they, um, they kind of... There's the category that believe, although we haven't got a hosepipe band, you should not water the garden. You know, you can put the washing up water on it, but that's as far as it goes. That's one end. And then the next bit in our road is if you're growing vegetables and food, you know, it's fair enough to water that because that's food. 
And then there's the ones that go a bit further and say, well, yeah, beauty's important too. So we water the flower beds and the food, just not the lawns. And then they're the ones who say, oh, stuff it. There's no house ban. We're going to water absolutely everything. And generally, there's also the ones who don't have a meter on their water supply. And um, whatever you think of that, in relation to the spirit, God wants you to be thirsty ground where there's no limit to the sprinkler. And what you really want is a thunderstorm. What you really want is a drenching. And I want us to stir up in us over the summer a hunger for the spirit of God and what he does. Of course, the spirit does many, many things. The Spirit encourages us. The Spirit gives us that deep down gut understanding that we, yes, even me, really are children of God. That I will not be judged. That on the last day, it's already happened for me because it happened at the cross. That I will not be judged. That I am a child of God. That I am included because Jesus won that for me at a terrible price. It's that gut deep down, I am a child of God. And it's interesting when Paul, that intellectual heavyweight, you know, who stands and towers kind of above, above the world of his day and even our world, when he writes about being a child of God, he always brings it back to an encounter with the Holy Spirit. He always brings it back to that deep down assurance. He calls it a deposit. It's not the whole of the life of heaven. It's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You just know deep down. And if there's anybody sitting there who doesn't know deep down that they are a child of God, I want to encourage you to come to the front, to have the courage to come to the front, just say, look, I... That thing that you were talking about, Peter, isn't there for me, and I will pray for it because it is your birthright as a child of God to have that deep, deep understanding. But one of the other things that the Holy Spirit does is take the words of God, both the kind of prophetic words that we love, we love to invite as a church, but also the eternal word of God, the Bible, The Holy Spirit takes the words of the Bible and the today word, the prophetic word, the kind of rima word, and makes it alive to us and applies it to our hearts. And it can be a massive encouragement or it can be a kind of blow to the solar plexus because sometimes the word of God is sharp and just shows me stuff about myself that I really, really um, need to change, and I, you know, I experience that all the time. Um, that God will now and then He'll bring something to me that is just a massive challenge. And when He does, the kind of threshold thing that I have to do is I have to tell someone else. Usually, Anne to start with, I have to tell someone else I've been convicted of this because um, if I do not do that, it generally goes away. But if I bring it out into the light and begin to chew on it and feed on it, 
then generally speaking, God will lead me on a path, and it's not always an easy or a short path, that leads me to more freedom than I had before. And I, I don't know what your first experience was of hearing God or hearing his voice or hearing about him. I mean, my parents taught me to pray simple prayers. Um, they were believers in a kind of background sort of way, and we, we did sometimes go to church. And they taught me to pray sort of little kid prayers. Um, I don't know that I had to kneel by the bed. That was perhaps a previous generation. But in my bed, they taught me to pray when I was very little. And it was simple prayers. It was kind of, God bless mummy and daddy, and God help me be good. They particularly liked that one. (laughs) And um, those were kind of the prayers, God bless mummy and daddy, and and help me to be good. And those were kind of my, my early... Um, baby and little child prayers. But I first heard the stories from the Bible only when I went to school. I think I was lucky. I think few children at our state schools today would have that experience, but I did. Um, The first um, school I I really went to, first junior school, um, had a headmaster, and particularly a headmaster's wife, who were right in there with the Bible, and my next school as well. And it was a very kind of um, respectable sort of Christian faith, but the love for the Bible was real. And um, I loved the Old Testament stories. I mean, I just loved them. You know, as a seven-year-old, as a ten-year-old, I just loved those stories, the heroes and the villains and their battles and their victories and defeats. But I thought they were some of the stupidest men and women who had ever lived. Because all they had to do was not worship idols and life would be great. I mean, how stupid can you get? And uh, at that age, I did not realise that those same battles that they faced would be my battles as well. But still, they were great stories. But then came the Gospels. And... um, I was drawn to Jesus like I was not drawn to any of the Old Testament heroes, even the really great ones like David, who could take on giants, and Elijah, who could slaughter the prophets of Baal and, you know, do things like that. I was drawn to Jesus in a way I wasn't drawn to any of the others. Because he was amazing. He was just amazing. There was nothing that Satan could do that Jesus couldn't put right. There was absolutely nothing, up to and including raising people from the dead. No one did that. And he was really smart when clever and obnoxious people tried to trip him up. Jesus was really smart. He always had the right thing to say. He always had the word in season. And he was gentle with the weak and the broken, and he was tough with the powerful and the arrogant. Although from a 10-year-old's perspective, Jesus could be a bit slow to act. I mean, I have to admit, I did think that. You know, when that village was unkind to Jesus and James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven, I was with them all the way. You know, I was with them all the way. And... When Jesus said, well, we just don't do things that way, I I kind of understood it. 
But then came the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, and it all got much more difficult. Jesus was betrayed, and by one of the twelve, which shouldn't have happened. He was handed over to the Romans by his own people, which shouldn't have happened. He was condemned by the Roman governor, even though the governor knew that Jesus had done nothing wrong, which shouldn't have happened. He was crucified and killed. And at each of the points at which the rescue should have happened, it didn't happen. And of course it didn't end there, because after the horror of the crucifixion, Jesus rose from the dead. And the soldiers guarding the tomb were so terrified by the angel that they they went into a sort of coma. And Jesus was alive. And I couldn't wait for what was going to happen next. You know, cowardly Pilate and the evil chief priests getting their well-deserved and hopefully extremely violent end. But it didn't happen the way a ten-year-old would write the story. After all that suffering, Jesus would not take revenge. Which meant that the chief priests and Romans were still in charge. And any ten-year-old at school knows what happens if the bullies are not dealt with. And in one form or another, the chief priests and the Romans have been in charge ever since. And even worse, when Jesus met his friends on the mountain, he told them he was leaving, returning to the Father. And there's a lot of stuff about being witnesses, but who wants to be a witness instead of having Jesus? And for me, the ascension was the saddest part of the entire Bible. Because Jesus just left them and went home. And two angels turned up and said, OK, don't worry, he's coming back. But it's very clear as you read on that that wasn't going to happen anytime soon. And of course, you will realise as you're listening to 10-year-old Peter, at least I hope you will, that I really didn't understand the message at all. I had not understood the message of the gospel at all. I'd listened to the story, but I hadn't understood the message of the gospel. And for me, that that came years later. There's the father, there's the creator, the prime mover, the eternal and unchanging reality. behind everything and there is the son who took on a human body who lived our life with us and who sacrificed himself for us but there's also the spirit the spirit of Jesus the living presence of God with us you can know about God you can listen to stories and testimonies from people who believe But if that's all you have, all you're left with is questions. Why doesn't God just sort it out? Why doesn't God just sort it all out? 
Why doesn't he deal with the chief priests and the Romans and their successors down the ages? Because sorting it out is not his priority. Sorting me out is his priority. Because unless there's a change of the heart, a real change of the heart, nothing else is ever going to really change. If you let him, God comes close and touches your life and turns it upside down. The Spirit brings you the life of Jesus. And people worry a lot about identity and freedom and who I really am. Is it what I inherited? My background, my education, my nationality, my gifts, my skills, my gene pool. Is that who I am? Or is it the reality I construct in my head? I can be anything I want. Is freedom an identity about being able to do and be whatever I want? I'll just make the story up in my head. Because if it is, I will never have it. There are too many pressures. There's my family, my DNA. There's my soul sickness, what the Bible calls sin, that limits and binds me. There's the social influences on me, much stronger than I imagine. The habits that create synaptic pathways in my brain. And then there's advertising and propaganda and social media and paradigms and celebrities and trends. Is freedom an identity really about being able to do and be whatever I make up in my head? Or is it about letting God take me by the hand and not having to work all that out by myself? Letting him break off the things that bind me and hold me. He says, walk with me and those things will not be your prison. Walk with me and what you've inherited, what you've grown up with, what limits you and the pressures that you live with every day will not be your prison. If you let him, God will come close and touch your life. But letting God come close is not an easy thing to do. Sounds very nice, but it is not an easy thing to do. Because there is a part of us that prefers isolation if that's the cost of staying in control. Control is an illusion. It's a complete illusion, but it's very, very seductive. Isolation feels a lot, lot safer If you've never said yes to God taking control, if you've never said, yes, I really mean it, God, you can take control, you're going to have a chance to say that today if you want to. Count the cost, because it's considerable. Now, for some people, a message like this will touch your heart, 
but you're not actually ready to give up control. That's fine as long as you're honest about it. His time will come. If you already did make that decision, remember that you made it. Remember you chose to give up control. God is a father. He's not a tyrant. He will never force you. But if you choose to go in on your own, you're missing out. You know, I read today, um, that was yesterday actually, in the paper that half a million people are on antidepressants. And the people who research this say, we, we know we're not bothered about people who have um, acute or severe depression. The, the, the bit of that that really worries us is, is that most of that half a million, it's more what you'd call social unhappiness. It's more the result of things like loneliness and lack of connection with other people. But they go and see the doctor and the doctor doesn't know what to do and there's nothing else. So the only thing they have to give you to make your life better is a drug. And the assumption with the research is, well, the solution is other forms of kind of medical or social intervention. But I wonder what we can do. Now, our vision as a church is the city transformed, make life better, make disciples. What would it be like if communities in Sheffield was so strong, if people's care for each other was so strong that the only people on antidepressants are people with, you know, severe, acute, where it really is a medical issue. And even then, nine times out of ten, we'd pray for healing and God would sort it out. What a city like that be like to live in? But it does start with us. It does start with us and our own story with the Spirit. Because almost the first rule of discipleship is you cannot give away anything you haven't got yourself. You just can't. Whatever you don't have, you can't give. You can't give it to your children. You can't give it to your parents. You can't give it to your brothers and sisters. You can't give it to your friends or your colleagues. If you haven't got it, you can't give it. The Father gives the Spirit without measure, but receiving it comes at a cost. And the cost is giving up control. And that is a scary thing to do because control is seductive. It's an illusion. We don't even control the breath in our bodies. But it's seductive. And isolation can feel safer. I want to invite you to review where you are with the spirit and with control. And to be as brutally honest as you possibly can with yourself. I'm not going to make you tell anybody else or anything like that. But I want to invite you in the presence of the Father and the Son who sacrificed himself for
for you to review where you are on your hunger for the Spirit. Because it comes to you free, God's gift, but it comes at a price. You cannot invite God's Spirit to sit in the driving seat to direct you, lead you, encourage you, love you, challenge you, and at the same time want to be in control. It just doesn't work. There's only room for one person in the driving seat, and it's either you or the Holy Spirit. So I want to just give us a bit of time, really, to do that with God. And um, Jane, I'm wondering if you could just come and play, maybe just something that's kind of do business with God-like. <laughs> And Lord, would you send your spirit now? And for each one of us, would you show us what the next step is in giving up control? It will be different for every one of us. Lord, what's the next thing? And when God's shown you I want to invite you to say yes, Lord, which is always the best prayer. Yes, Lord. Thanks, Peter, for bringing that word to us.